Greetings friends and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker. I'm the pastor of Maidenbower Baptist Church in Crawley in West Sussex in the southeast of England. And you're listening to this podcast produced by Media Gratii. And you can learn more about that at mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where you can find this and other podcasts and uh, follow along getting a weekly newsletter where you'll find a link to the featured sermon or you can find us on Twitter or X or whatever you're calling it these days at Reading Spurgeon. So the aim of this podcast is to work our way through the sermons that were preached and then published by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was born in 1834. He was called home in 1892 and he is sometimes known as the Prince of Preachers. He has a particular gift given by God and blessed by the Lord for the proclamation of Christ in ways that are still valuable to us today. Each week, having read our way through a selection of his sermons, we find one featured sermon that really zeroes in on something representative in his ministry. So this week we're reading from 955 to 961, and our featured sermon is 959, a sermon entitled Right Replies to Right Requests, delivered on the Lord's Day morning of the 6th of November in 1870 at the Tabernacle in Newington in London. The text is Luke 11, verses 11 to 13. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Spurgeon tells us that there's evident progress in the chapter. The disciples are asking the Lord to teach them to pray, and he gave them an outline of what complete prayer should be. Brothers, says our preacher, we have need some of us to begin with that, asking to be taught to pray. It will be a blessed sign when it can be said of us, Behold, he prayeth. And just in proportion as we're instructed how to pray, shall we give evidence of more advanced Christian life. He has most grown in grace who prays best. Our growth in prayer, suggests Spurgeon, may be to us the test of our growth in all other respects. And then we move on to another question. If we know now how to pray, will God really answer us? Is prayer just some kind of psychological trick? ending with the benefit which it works in us, or does it really affect the heart of God? We're assured, says Spurgeon again, that asking is attended with receiving, that seeking attended with finding, knocking will lead to opening, that it's no vain thing to pray, that our prayers are not lost on the wind or expended merely on ourselves, but that there is a connection established by divine decree between the prayer that is raised on earth and the mercy given forth from heaven. Now, Spurgeon often preaches about prayer, in part because the Metropolitan Tabernacle was a congregation devoted to praying. And as we'll see as we reach the end of this sermon, this sermon was preached on the occasion of another season of prayer for the church. So it's designed to provoke and to encourage and to stir us up to pray. So there's a a challenge that Spurgeon wants to address the grave doubt which might arise in the troubled mind. It may be God will hear, and as a general rule will make replies in mercy, but I don't deserve anything. If the Lord should be incensed at my prayers and answer me in wrath instead of love, I deserve it. 
So he's dealing now with somebody who might says, why should God answer my prayers given my, my neediness and my wretchedness? He says, you observe that the fear lest God should give us something evil when we're seeking something good is very naturally raised in the heart by a sense of sinfulness and increased by the conviction that we should not always be able to judge whether the thing received be good or not. But as high as God is above us, so high is the certainty that he will give us good above the certainty that we will give good things to our children. So he's taking that illustration or imagery from Christ's teaching and says that's what you need to work on. The the principle of our doing good to our children, though evil, and God's doing good to his because he is God. And he says, I've I've seen many expositions of the passage in which there is an attempt made to show that the child asked a wrong thing. And he says, that's nonsense. Nothing of the kind is here. The child is not represented as asking for a stone, but seeking bread. The child made no mistake. His prayer was just what it should be. And the point of the parable touches the father's answer. And so he's simply going to work through this. Here we are asking for good things and anticipating that God will answer us. First heading, right prayers, right answers. Second point, the best prayer, the surest answer. The last heading, the prayer of the text is the best for it contains all blessings in it. Now, I think while Spurgeon sticks with that outline, uh, he it's perhaps not his neatest sermon and it does Uh, tend to roll a little bit as he gets going. But that's his basic outline, and you can see the development in it. Helpful for us if we're preachers or teachers to understand how he's developing and and emphasizing and expanding. Right prayers, right answers. Best prayer, surest answer. The prayer of the text is best. So then, right prayers and right answers. The child asks bread, he asks a fish, and he asks an egg. He doesn't get a stone, he doesn't get a snake, and he doesn't get a uh, a scorpion. There's at least some likeness between the appearance of what the child asks and the appearance of that which the father doesn't give. A stone could look like a loaf of bread. A fish could look a lot like a snake. And some suggest that there are scorpions that can fold themselves up that might look a little like an egg. But the child is never going to be made fool of by the father. The father has no intention of injuring the child. And so we shall have, when we pray for needful things, the really needful things themselves, and not some imitation of them, certainly no dangerous imitation of them, but the actual blessings. God will give what we seek, if it be a good thing. If I can summon faith enough to ask for the highest enjoyments and enrichments of grace, the highest blessings of Christian manhood, the most rapt and intense fellowship with Christ, I shall not receive instead of that that, an intoxicating excitement, a delirious fanaticism or some other deadly or injurious thing. Spurgeon wants us then to grasp the character of God in his goodness and mercy. And he's emphasizing here that if you ask God for some good thing, it is that good that you will receive and you can anticipate doing so. He says, now, that might not seem like a very useful truth, but I think I can show you that it is. So he's already now moving into the practicalities of this. 
He begins with the common blessings of providence, says you've been laying your case before the throne with much earnestness of late, and you've prayed God to guide you and to lead you in all the steps of life, but you're presently overwhelmed with trouble, distress has followed distress. He says don't judge harshly of God, remember how you've pleaded with him, what you've asked him for. You have asked that here on earth providence may deal wisely with you and that God may be glorified by you. Infinite wisdom is even now fulfilling your hallowed wish. Amid fiery trials, your faith is honouring God and every circumstance of your affliction is made subservient to your soul's perfection. What have you prayed for in spiritual matters, he asks. You might have questioned whether the spiritual gifts which we've received are what we hope they are, or whether after having sought of God grace, we may not after all have missed it. But, he says, where did you seek your faith? Didn't you ask your heavenly Father to give it to you? Haven't you devoutly sought, and don't you still seek today, even with tears, that he would work in you the faith which is of his own Spirit's creation? Now, do you think that he would have given you a stone instead of bread? that he would have put into your heart a carnal presumption or have suffered it to come there while you were waiting for the humble, simple faith of God's own people? My Lord, I sought it at thy feet, and there I found it, and it cannot be otherwise than a good and real faith which I found when I looked up to thee. Be assured, O anxious heart, that in the vital matter of faith true seekers shall not be put off with false faith." He says, what about other spiritual graces? You could ask the same question. Take repentance. He says, I'm not trying to depreciate the value of a discriminating theology. I'm not trying to say that those sorts of careful distinctions aren't important. But he does say this is, this is what God delights to give. And you see how he, he's insisting upon the goodness of God and the mercy of God. My longing is toward the repentance which is of God's own working. I lay myself down like a field, and I ask the Lord to plough me. I put myself before him as the patient places his limb under the surgeon's knife, and I beseech him to deal with me in the most cutting and severe manner, so that he may but rid me of the disease of sin. Now, says Spurgeon, if that's your disposition toward God, do you think that God is going to give you something other, that you'll be deceived in your repentance, or will you receive a repentance that need not be repented of? Would you give your child a serpent instead of a fish? Neither will God give you some suppositious repentance instead of the gospel repentance, which is the peculiar watermark of his own chosen. He says, do the same with your other graces, whether it be faith or repentance or whatever it may be. If you've sought something good of the Lord God and you've waited upon him in prayer, anxiously desiring to have such as God gives and only such as God gives, you shall not be deceived or disappointed. What then about all your experience? Somebody might say, well, perhaps it's all been a fallacy and a delusion. Perhaps it's all been fanciful. Is salvation real? Is Christianity true? Did you go to God, says Spurgeon, and desire to be a mere professor, just someone who says you're a Christian but isn't? Was it your wish to gain a worldly position or to win the respect of your friends by professing yourself to be a Christian? Or did you go sincerely to the Lord and for love of salvation desire to be converted? Did you desire the Saviour that you might be reconciled to God, that you might be made holy? 
And since then, he asks, have I still desired truly and earnestly to possess the grace which God gives and not the mere imitations of man? Do I pant or long to have God's own spirit in my soul? And is that my sincere and earnest prayer now? Well then, I have no right to suspect that I am deceived. Like a child, I believe that my heavenly Father has given me what I asked for. I have done right in so believing. This then is Spurgeon's point. If you've gone to God with right prayers, then you will receive right answers. Whether you're thinking about the common blessings of providence, if you've asked God to bless you in them, will he not bless? In spiritual matters, whether it's faith or repentance or any other genuine grace, can you not anticipate that having sought those things of a good and faithful God, what you have will be that for which you have asked? And what about your your experience as a whole? Have you called upon the Lord for mercy and has God somehow deceived you or deluded you? No, says Spurgeon, in an age in which men assail our faith, this is what is going to encourage and help us. We have been taught as we believe by the Spirit of God and by God's Word. And now, because this advanced age and this enlightened century have discovered that these old-fashioned truths are unphilosophical, are we now to believe that when we went to God for teaching we did not receive bread but a stone? I do not believe it, says our preacher, nor will I give up the bread I have long lived on because these men choose to call it a stone. I will hold it still, it is my food, and on it I shall live forever. He gives a couple more illustrations. If a man has sought of God to be filled with zeal till he becomes like a burning seraph, some will tell him that this is all wildfire. The man is excited beyond bounds and he ought to be more cool. But my dear brother, if you sought from God the zeal of his house that eats you up, do not believe that the spirit that God has given you is wildfire, that your ardour for the conversion of sinners is fanaticism. You ask it of God, it is God's good gift. And so too, when the believer has stood fast in the faith and would not leave it, he's been told, oh, you're just naturally obstinate, you're pig-headed, you've got hold of a thing and you won't, no making you give it up. Well, many a man of God has been ridiculed for his determination. It's not that he has any real anim- a martyr's spirit in him, says someone, it's just his animal obstinacy. Ah, my friend, but you know where you got this firmness. And if you wait upon the Lord and say, establish me in your fear, my God, help me to bear contradiction of sinners against myself as our Redeemer did, then God will not give you any good thing. So when we're assaulted or accused, and I think sometimes this happens to all believers, it does certainly happen to pastors. People tell us that we only believe what we believe because we're professionals, that we take things seriously because that's our job. We're told as Christians, perhaps by family members or friends, that uh, we're just uh, ornery, pig-headed people, that uh, we're, we're not particularly thoughtful or wise, but we say, no, where did I go for these truths and where did I go for these realities? Did I ask the Lord God of heaven to show me his glory in Christ? Then what do I think I have seen? God gives good gifts to his children. And if I have asked for the right thing, then I will receive a good answer. That's our first heading then. Remember how Spurgeon's working through these things. Right prayers, right answers. His second point, the best prayer, the surest answer. So he now, and this is where it gets a, 
if you like, a little, little bit messy, perhaps not the, the, the tidiest transition. Dear friends, he goes on, there's another question here now to arise in every heart. It seems then that I have only to ascertain that my prayer is for a really good thing and I shall have it. Just so, he says, and therefore the prayer for the best thing is surest of an answer. Because the text tells us how much more, how much more than the, the father who being evil knows how to good, give a good gift to his child, how much more than that shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? There's no doubt then about the Holy Spirit being a good thing. And so when we ask for him, for his divine presence and influence, we may rest assured that God will give it to us. And that's the first point then. God will give the Holy Spirit to them that ask for him. You and I, though we are made to live, often feel that life to be flagging and almost dying. But the Spirit of God can quicken us, revive in us the spark of divine life and strengthen in our hearts the life of God. So we pray for this quickening breath and, my brother, God will give it to you. I don't know, says Spurgeon, how to express to you the sense I feel just now of the deep condescension of God in promising to give us the Holy Spirit. He has given us his Son and now he promises his Spirit. Here are two gifts, unspeakable in preciousness. Will God in very deed dwell with man upon the earth? Will God dwell in man? Can it be that the infinite spirit, God over all, blessed forever, will dwell in my poor heart and make my body to be his temple? It's certainly so. For as sure as it is that God will give good things to those that ask good things, he will surest of all give the Holy Spirit to them that ask for the Holy Spirit. Sit not in the dark then when the light of God will break upon you if you seek it. You see then this progress. Do you ask for a good thing? God is disposed to give it. Do you ask for the best thing? How much more will God give the Holy Spirit the best of all gifts? So says Spurgeon, that desire will be fulfilled if you ask God for the Holy Spirit's ministry operations in your soul do you imagine that God will in any way hold back? But he presses us forward a little more under this second heading. The first sub-point, God will give the Holy Spirit to them that ask for him. The second, it really will be the Holy Spirit. Some persons have been misled by an evil spirit. I believe that very much of the rant that came out years ago about the date of the second coming of Christ and the unknown tongues and I don't know what beside of blatant nonsense was of an evil spirit and I query whether there were a humble laying down of minds before God's throne to seek the Holy Spirit, whether there was not much self-sufficiency and much desire for something that would make important its possessor which led certain eminent preachers into vain imaginings and fanatical rant. But if you ask God, you will not receive an evil spirit instead of the good spirit, humbly and patiently waiting upon the Most High. You shall not be misled by fancy. Now, someone might say, well, oh, I've done that, and, and that's exactly what I got. I got this uh, new revelation. I was uh, told about the, the date of the second coming. I, I have been given these unknown Spurgeon says, no, no, no. I, I'm not saying you can just claim it. But have you truly sought God for his spirit? Men will tell you that you are deluded when you experience high joys and deep experiences. But if you've sought the Holy Spirit 
it sincerely and intensely. It shall be the spirit that God will give to you. We might say you need to go back and ask out of the scriptures, what are the evidences of the Spirit's operation? Because very often the things that we claim as evidences of the Spirit's work really don't have much to do with the person of the Holy Ghost. But then you notice again that this Holy Spirit, the one who is given, the one who is truly given, is to be given in answer to prayer. If we have life, we are to pray that we may have it more abundantly. If we have pardon in one respect, we are to ask for a fuller sense of it. And if we have the Holy Spirit so that we are quickened and saved, we do not ask for him in that capacity, but we ask for his power in other directions and for his grace in other forms. Oh, you that have the Spirit then, pleads Spurgeon, you're the very men to pray that you may experience more of his matchless operations and gracious influences, and in all the benign sanctity of his indwelling, may seek that yet more and more you may know him. And now he presses something else home. It's the, 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 the shift that there is. He says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children... What would you expect to be the parallel? Well, God knows how to give good gifts. But he says, no, we have more than that. You know how to give good gifts unto your children, but you can't always do so. You don't always have the capacity. But God gives good gifts to those who call upon him. He truly gives the spirit to them that ask him. He doesn't only know how, he actually does it. Never does the God of heaven have to say to his child, my child, I cannot. The poor sinner says, Lord, help me to repent. The Lord never says, I haven't got enough of the Holy Spirit to make you repent. One of his children cries, Lord, give me the anointing of the Holy One that I may understand your gospel more fully. And the Heavenly Father never says, I cannot give you so much of the Holy Spirit as that. Boundlessly will God give, if faith dare but open her mouth wide. You are not straightened or constrained in God. You are straightened or constrained in in yourselves. So no miracles do we seek, says Mr. Spurgeon, but all the spiritual uplifting which the Holy Spirit gave to men of old we need, and he can give it to us still. Though he will not reveal new truths, here are those careful qualifications, uh, we've already hinted at these, we do not want that God should do that, for we already have the complete gospel revealed but he will bring home the old truth to our souls and make them potent upon our consciences and upon our lives, and this is what we want. Oh, if any of you are but just Christians and are not glorifying God, nor living near him, nor mighty in prayer, nor well taught in scripture, nor useful in your lives, I beseech you remember, if you have not the Spirit, it is because you do not seek him importunately. Do not seek him with a deep sense of your need of him. There's the encouragement and the challenge woven together. Pray to God. He will give you the real spirit. No enthusiasm that might mislead you. No fanaticism that might injure you. No self-conceit that might become like a deadly scorpion to you. But his own gentle, truthful, infallible Holy Spirit he will give to them that ask him. And that brings Spurgeon to his last point. The best of prayers, which is sure to be heard, is also a most comprehensive one. So remember the sequence, right prayers, right answers, best prayer, surest answer. And now this is the best prayer in the text, for it contains all blessings in it. The best of prayers, sure to be heard, 
is also a most comprehensive one. And he takes us from Luke to Matthew and says, read the 11th verse. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? What's the parallel in Luke? How much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Is it not clear then, asks Spurgeon, that the Holy Spirit is the equivalent for good things and that in fact when the Lord gives us the Holy Spirit, he gives us all good things. What a comprehensive prayer then is the prayer for the Spirit of God. Dear brother, sit down with pencil in hand and a sheet of blank paper before you and write down all your spiritual wants. I will judge of your wisdom, he says, by the length of the catalogue. For if you know yourself, you will find you have not done yet. You're a great mass of wants. To pray for all these things separately might seem a very long exercise. So, my dear brother, just take the pencil and do as the schoolboys do when they add up the total of their sums, and you will find that it comes to this. The Holy Spirit. My God, give me your Holy Spirit, and I have all. Don't we need the Saviour, says somebody? Truly, but the Holy Ghost, where he comes, takes of the things of Christ and shows them to us. And that's the great value of the Holy Ghost. He shall glorify me, says Christ. Wherever the Spirit of God comes, there comes the blood of the atonement. We are brought near by it, and every spiritual blessing bought with blood is brought by the Holy Ghost home to the soul. If you have the Spirit, he does not come empty-handed. He comes loaded with all the treasures of the covenant and blessings ordained for you from before the foundation of the world and the blessings secured to you in the covenant of grace and the blessings brought for you by Jesus' precious blood. So let this then be your prayer. Give me, O God, your Holy Spirit, for in asking for him you ask for every truly good gift. And that prayer then is intercessory, not just for yourselves, but also for others. You pray for your children, for your wife, for your neighbours, for your friends. I hope your intercessory role is a long one. If God gives you power to bless men by your prayers, don't stay the blessing. Ask God to give the Holy Spirit to those who are around you, to pour out his mercy by the Spirit of Christ into their souls. And then he says, I want you to understand too that tomorrow is the day of prayer. Here's that season of prayer. Here's that life of prayer that is typical of the tabernacle under Spurgeon's ministry. And he says, I want you then to be pleading with God, praying throughout that day and onward, that God will give to his churches more and more of the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm ill at ease right now. The Church of England is eaten through and through with sacramentarianism but nonconformity appears to me to be almost as badly riddled with philosophical infidelity. Those of whom we thought better things are turning aside one by one from the fundamentals of faith. He says they've, they've given up the doctrine of the eternity of future punishment. Now it's the fall, first one thing, then another. And if some have, men have their way, all the doctrines of the word must go. But through and through, I believe, the heart of England, he says, is honeycombed with this detestable infidelity which dares still to go into the pulpit and call itself Christian. This is his grief. I pray then that God may preserve our denomination from it. But my prayer shall go up that he will give us the Holy Spirit, for men never go wrong with the Holy Spirit. 
He will keep them right and lead them into all truth. Soundness of doctrine is only worth having when it is the result of the living indwelling of God in the church. And because too much the Holy Spirit has departed, we see the signs that the Orthodox faith is given up and the inventions of men preached instead thereof. Sometimes I breathe as I walk along this prayer, he says, that God would raise up more ministers to preach the gospel with power. There's so much feeble preaching, mere twaddling, and so little declaration of the gospel of power. But I do not know that I will pray that prayer again. What I will say is this, Lord, send your spirit upon the churches. Then will come the ministers. Then will come the earnest workers. I want the churches to be more holy, he says. I grieve to see so much of worldly conformity, how often wealth leads men astray, how many Christians follow the fashions of this wicked world. But shall I pray that the churches may be holy? I will, but I will put my prayer in this form. I will ask that God will give the Holy Spirit. He is the spirit of holiness. He leads to obedience, purges from sin, and creates the image of God in his people. What about unity? I will pray for the Holy Spirit, for if he is in us and abounds, we shall not be divided, but shall feel the unity of life. If then there be anything else that we long to see in the churches, and I confess there are a thousand things, for I would desire to see them increased with men as with a flock, I would desire to see them built up in an intelligent and understanding of the doctrines of grace, I desire to see them looking for the coming of Christ and ready for his advent, if we desire all these things. Let us ask that the Holy Spirit may be more plenteously given. And when this prayer is answered, as answered it must be, then shall we see all that our soul desires. I do therefore very earnestly, over and over again, ask you to make tomorrow a day of real prayer. And if you cannot be here in body, yet all day long cry mightily unto the God of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, that is, our Father, who hath spared not his own Son, but freely delivered him up for us all, who will also with him freely give us all things, if we know how to ask aright. You may not have, at this point in time, such a season of prayer planned or even anticipated in the church of which you are a part. You may not have such a season of prayer established in your own personal experience. But can you not, my brother or my sister, ask that God will give you his Holy Spirit and in giving him give you every good thing that truly you need. May God help us so to pray and grant us such blessings and such mercies according to his favour in Christ Jesus. Next week, God willing, Purging Out the Leaven, Sermon 965 in Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit. The text is 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8. The uh, overall reading is 962 to 968. And if you're following along, friend, that means you're uh, getting into volume 17 of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit. So I hope you'll join us then and that God will bless you in the meantime and give you, as well as me, and those amongst whom we stand as God's people, more of his gracious spirit.